In old school games, life is cheap. Don't be a dope. Bring your pole, oil, and rope. And try not to go down in a heap. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Down in the Heap podcast. I'm your host, Rob. Podcasting to you live from my porch in beautiful northeast Minneapolis. It's just a little bit before sunrise, so it's... It's really overcast today. We've been saying we're supposed to get rain today, but so far nothing. It's been it just still dry as a bone out here. It's pretty bleak. Um, it's supposed to get rain this weekend too, but it's gotten to the point now where it's I'll believe it when I see it. Um, so I've gotten a few calls here today, but first, before I do anything, I want to remind you all if you want to take part in the Midrazine giveaway for your choice of either issue three four or five all you have to do is call in by midnight tomorrow the 6th of august 2021 with some kind of comment regarding cartoons it could be you singing the theme song it could be you just saying why you like the cartoon or just naming the cartoon what kind of cereal you like to eat while you're watching the favorite cartoons, anything like that. Uh, I've only had a few calls so far regarding that, so your chances are good. All you have to do is call in. Right now, uh, Midrazine number two is winging its way. Well, if it's like any packages I've received lately, it's crawling its way to Daniel Norton and Bandit's Keep, who won the last Midrazine giveaway. And I know, like, Taylor recused himself after winning the first one, but I really don't have any issue with repeat winners if, I mean, it's all random, so if you want to keep putting your name in the hat, it's fine by me. But first, uh, let's go to some of the calls I've had. Lords of Light! Hey Rob, Daniel from Minutes Keep calling in about your call-in episode. Uh, <laughs> so, you're talking about like the DCC Magic and Rollmaster. And, you know, I think I agree with you. As much as I like those things, like my favorite DCC uh, campaign I ever ran was just a one-on-one. So it wasn't so awkward because it was one player. So when there was magic, it's like the whole table wasn't waiting for it. And while in theory, I love the idea of all these different weapon charts and stuff, I think that when you're playing a loose OSR-style role-playing game, um, I don't know, yeah, referring to tables and stuff just constantly for combat might be more than you want to deal with. Uh, this coming from the guy that is using chainmail, uh, but you know uh, it really depends on the table and what's going on. And I think your idea of the gladiators and stuff, and then having a complicated combat, would be actually very cool. Hey Daniel, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. That's that's a good point. I think when you have a really small group, whether it's a one-on-one or you just maybe have two players or something, it does change the dynamic a little bit and you can have a more involved system and not have it really get in the way or bog down because I think for me as a player one of my issues with it is and with another topic that's been talked about on uh, uh, Joe from hindsight list lately talking about social encounters and shopping trips and stuff like that a lot of it is just you know, if, if your character's not involved, sometimes it's not so interesting. And I guess that sounds like being a selfish player and stuff. But it also goes a little bit to the point of being an involved and engaged player. 
so I don't know. Yeah, like like so many of these things, it all boils down to your personal preferences and uh, the group you're playing with, their personal preferences, and you'll find out what works best for you and your group. And uh, I think something like uh, a really involved or uh, intricate kind of combat system or magic system for that matter could work really cool or could work well with a game that where those things were those occurrences those those battles or magical duels or whatever were seldom happened so they were really special and that that would make it worthwhile to me having these really involved combat sequences so I don't know if you had a, a setting where there were a lot of just like little political factions whether they were um, noble houses or merchant houses or maybe just some sort of sporting faction or something that the the players were involved with and maybe a lot of the game is just this like political wrangling and maneuvering in this city-state or something. But every once in a while, once a week, once a month or something, there were these games or where disputes maybe were settled through gladiatorial combat and the characters maybe happened to be the champions of their respective houses or something or just participants. So they, <clears throat> once a once a week or once a month in, in the game setting take part in these gladiatorial events and um, yeah I think that could and maybe the rest of the, the rule set you could use anything really I mean you could use like melee or uh, the fantasy trip or uh, role master or DCC or something I don't know whatever you wanted to have as your, uh, your your combat system you wouldn't even need to like extend to the rest of the thing. The rest could just be really loosey goosey stuff, <clears throat> but the the combat might be really intricate. A game like that might, could be a lot of fun. Uh, why not? <laughs> All depends, right? Daniel's got a few more messages, so let's keep the ball rolling. Hey, up, Daniel from Minutes. Keep calling in in the call-in show again, uh, creating that circle. Uh, so, you know, I love Funhouse Dungeons, but I think the reason that they can be not fun or can be boring is if they're, if you do them too often, they really need to be something that challenges your expectations. Like you're used to going into dungeons, you know what you bring with you, you prepare these spells, you have a mule, you have your rope, whatever. And then when you go into the Funhouse Dungeon, it's a new set of challenges. But yeah, if every dungeon is just completely gonzo, I think that would become very boring very quickly. I've set up before and I'm stole the idea from somewhere else I'm sure many other people have said it too if everything's weird nothing's really weird that's my take on fantasy I don't want everything to be cookie cutter I don't want everything to be predictable I don't want everything to be the same but if nothing can be anticipated and nothing can be relatable to previous experiences or or relatable
relatable to your expectations in the game, then it does become frustrating for me. And of course there's there's funhouse dungeons and there's funhouse dungeons. Some of them can be fun and some of them usually the ones that for me at least are are blatant attempts at like jokiness and comedy and stuff. Those to me might appeal to me if I was in the right mood, but I think I'd tire of them really quickly if the jokes were really hackneyed, uh, dorky stuff. I mean, if if it's just like little Easter eggs once in a while, I think that's fun. But if it's if the whole dungeon is predicated on on just being goofy and comic, I think that's usually going to be a swing and a miss for me. But yeah, in general, for me, everything's weird. Nothing's really weird. It's just a big slop bucket. And again, that's all, in some ways, based upon the construction and presentation. Someone might make a genius setting where everything's weird. That usually also requires everyone to really... Um, learn a lot of lore to even start relating to a setting like that. I think of like Tecumel or Takuma or <laughs> however you pronounce uh, the world that uh, M.A.R. Barker is that? I haven't read any of it. It's all hearsay for me, but it's people talk about that being as a fantasy setting that's very much not like the typical Tolkien-esque Western European uh, influence kind of setting. It's more based on like South American and Eastern influences. So it's very different from what most people are, are accustomed to and having its own like language Barker like Tolkien from what I understand kind of created his own linguistic system which is really I think can be a those things can be barriers to entry and uh, and that's largely why I haven't really investigated that system much because it just seems like something I'd never want to play but I'm going way far afield like I usually do my point being, I've had fun playing in crazy, you know, monster hotel, funhouse dungeons where there's very little rhyme or reason to what's going on. But in general, I much prefer something where it's, where it has some kind of internal logic that's relatable. If it it can, I mean, a system can have a closed system where it's this, like, uh, mythic underworld dungeon. It can have its own internal logic that doesn't have any kind of relationship to the world above. And sometimes you can kind of grasp that, but, but it's usually really elusive. And sometimes I think these, these scenarios that are prepared for someone, the DM that's reading this and has all the pieces laying out in front of them, it can be really cool. You know, you can look at it and say, oh, this is awesome. This is going to be a great adventure to run. And the players are going to slowly 
acquire this knowledge and put all the pieces together. But as much as you think something like that might come together, sometimes it just doesn't, and then it just is this, to what the, the players are perceiving, is this kind of just random, frustrating set of events. <laughs> Aha! I made it to the end. <laughs> that was a great episode, even if it was very long. I just broke it up, so not a big deal. But uh, to the very last message from, from Kevin from Red Caps, yeah, and what you're talking about there is creating something as your own world. I really, really embrace that. And what, one thing that he said, so interesting, because maybe we all go through this, is like at one point, I don't know, maybe a couple years ago, I was just buying so many systems, and I just looked and I said, man, all these systems are literally just OD&D or BX, and they've got like one or two classes in them and like a little bit of lore and nothing. And it's like the spells are the same, the monsters are the same. Why am I buying so many systems? And I thought the exact same thing. People would be better off producing books that are, if, if you want to do an OD&D clone or a white box clone or a swords and wizardry, you don't need to put all the rules in it every time. Just, you know, I'd rather you spend the time making up cool individual spells and stuff for your world and monsters for your world than get the same stupid spells. Well, I shouldn't say stupid. I guess the spells are good, but you know what I'm saying. I kind of cut myself out there, so, because <laughs> I started going down the route of stupid, which is not really... Yeah, whatever. Spells are spells. My point is, is that if you look at something like uh, Warriors of the Red Planet, which is like a John Carter type hack of OD&D, like all the spells are very specific to like mind bending, uh, you know, telepaths and androids or scientists or whatever they have there. You know, there's no just simple light spell. But if you look at a lot of uh, these retro clones, they, they literally just use the same spell list from OD&D. And it just made me say, wow, I'd much rather have a book that's about half as thick that's just interesting stuff for your world that I can add to this than an entirely new game. So, yeah, I'm definitely on that. And uh, when I make my retro clone, well, I'll probably just do what everybody else does. It's one thing to talk to talk, it's another thing to walk the walk. <laughs> A better approach now might be to release products with the assumption that you're just running some kind of classic D&D style game because they're all pretty uh, interchangeable. They're all have pretty baseline assumptions. You take a, a monster stat block, even a rather complicated monster stat block from one game system to another. And it's, you know, you can, it's pretty easy for at least a, A veteran referee to extrapolate that to their own particular rule set. So I think it would be, I'm more interested now in just a, uh, something to build on the baseline. So I'm not looking for another set of rules. I'm looking for a, a, a set of like swords and sorcery rules, specific swords and sorcery approach, like, say, uh, Hyperborea, that I could overlay on top of swords and wizardry. Um, or I'm looking for, you know, just new spells, new magic items, new, a new adventure, whatever. And, but anecdotally, uh, it sounds like rule systems are what actually sell. And I think you kind of see that, too, in 
the big companies releases, they'll they're much more apt to do a, another printing of the rule set or put out some kind of rules tome, and especially a tome that has stuff in it for the player and the DM. Um, from what I understand, all the new uh, Wizards of the Coast releases kind of follow that format. If it's not a big adventure book, it's a big book of stuff, um, classes and spells and monsters and uh, playable speechy monsters and stuff. So, you, so it's stuff for both the DM and the players because they're out to sell books, right? They're a company. So I'm pretty sure that's a lot of times why we get, rather than a, a slim pamphlet of sword and planet rules for your classic D&D game, instead we get a full-blown rules system. But, yeah, I'd like to see the slim, pam <laughs> slim pamphlet. Hi Rob, just a quick bit of feedback. Um, from my point of view, the long call-in shows are good. Um, they got me through a um, quite long uh, shopping session, so I just plugged my earphones in, heard the questions come in, heard you feel them, and uh, yeah, it was good. But obviously uh, other people might prefer a shorter format, maybe even your voice would prefer a shorter format. Alright fella, cheers, bye. Hi Rob, just as a PS, I think in your show you may, I heard, I think you called Joe Richter, Joe Rodriguez and possibly, and then later on Joe Richter Rodriguez. Um, I was just, just wondering if that was right. Um, I always thought it was just Joe Richter. I mean, I, I just say just, I don't mean just, um, no, I mean, to be, to be fair, um, his initials being J.R.R., like the great man J.R.R. Tolkien, seems perfectly reasonable and, and appropriate. Um, but <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know, I guess I just wondered if I have missed something. Um, anyway, cheers, fellow. Bye. I always appreciate getting feedback on the more macro aspects of the show. If, uh, if you like the length of the show or wish it were shorter or wish it were longer not interested in call-in shows you know things like that but uh, just the format of the show and stuff if you have ideas or suggestions i'm always looking for it uh, as daniel mentioned and as goblin's henchman alluded to though i don't know length of show is something that i um, i personally don't have a big issue with because i think Many of us are listening, well, not so much anymore that so many more people are, are working from home, but I think it often is the case where you're listening to podcasts um, to fill the time when you're doing some mundane task like on a commute to work or a drive to the grocery store or you know mowing the lawn or whatever. And to me, it's a lot easier to just pause when that commute is done and resume playing when you commute back home or hit pause when you're done mowing the lawn and just resume listening later on than it is to have a podcast end in the middle of you mowing the lawn or in the middle of your commute and then what do you do 
I mean, maybe you come to a stoplight and you can start another podcast, but, um, yeah, so, uh, I'm probably the oddball that actually likes half hour long and longer podcasts more than, than little short podcasts. And I'll, uh, I think a lot of people do this too. They just pick and choose what they're going to listen to based upon their expected listening time. So if they do have a half hour commute, they're going to queue up a podcast that's a half hour long or, or longer. But, uh, yeah, so there's room for, for all these different formats. The Joe Rodriguez, <laughs> I think, I think Joe will be tickled to, uh, where Goblin's Henchman points out the JRR and Joe Richter Rodriguez. That's, uh, I should know better than to, to air these inside jokes. And this is truly an anchor inside joke. Um, a while back, a week or two ago, Jason Underd's RPG Variety Cast, I can't remember if he was just thanking the people that had called in, but he had a slip of the tongue and referred to Joe Richter as Joe Rodriguez, confounding the R last names of Carl Rodriguez and Joe Richter. And uh, the next episode, Joe called in referring to himself as Joe Rodriguez, and I just thought it was funny, so I was extending that to my show and uh, yeah sorry I ask you a final time will you allow all these humans to pay for your money <laughs> I listen back to these calls and stuff and wow I I, <laughs> I sound so uh, subdued out of it I think whenever I podcast on the porch I always have a more hushed tone and maybe it's early in the morning too that that does that to me um, out here on the porch I kind of feel like I'm talking and my neighbors could over overhear me because I sometimes hear them having a conversation on their porches too so I, I feel a little bit more exposed out here on the porch so and also we're coming up on the one year anniversary of uh, me getting COVID in fact a year ago today it was probably percolating in my system as we speak and as much as I try and keep telling myself that I'm fully vaccinated and I won't be hospitalized if I catch the Delta variant again I, I have this um, nagging worry that that's not going to be the case and having this job where I'm exposed to the public all the time and I know you know it's, I'm seeing masking a little bit more prevalent among the customer base again, but it's still maybe 10% of the people that walk through the doors at the grocery store are wearing masks, and yet I know that probably 30% plus of the people that walk through the door have never gotten a vaccine, and might be asymptomatic, might even be feeling poorly and still just don't connect the dots that they have COVID and are out there spreading around this even more um, contagious variant and starting the whole cycle over because then we'll get another variant and uh, the mutations will go on and on and on. I'm just, I'm so tired of this merry-go-round that we're on with this disease and these idiots that just refuse to 
acknowledge the potential solution to these issues, or at least mitigating the potential spread of these things. It's, oh my god, I just want to, sometimes I just want to punch myself in the face and uh, <laughs> knock myself out. But anyway, this is, that's all been preying on my mind a lot lately. I've been having nightmares about being back in the hospital again. Um, anytime I, we've, we've had this air quality issue in the Twin Cities where, where uh, the smoke from these Canadian wildfires has been coming down for the past, I don't know if it's up to two weeks now, and we've had these air quality alerts, and I, I mean, I'm only three miles from downtown um, Minneapolis, and usually the skyline, if you're on an elevated position, is really breathtaking and prevalent, but it's been like a shadowy haze, like those horror story pictures of smog and metropolises, especially back in the 70s and 80s and stuff, and uh, um, so anytime I feel, and I'm affected by this now, I've, I've always had kind of um, been susceptible to um, lung ailments and stuff as a kid. I always had bronchitis and stuff and a cough every spring. And since having COVID and pneumonia through COVID and stuff, I'm, I'm even more prone to these things. So I've been feeling this air quality in uh, how I feel. And, and so... Anyway, that's confounding with worrying, oh, God, do I have COVID again? And um, so, anyway, long story short is I've been in a really somber mood lately. <laughs> so, that, so that's probably coming through a little bit too. TMI. I thought it would be interesting for, well, maybe it won't be, but um, there's been some chatter lately about how people approach rule zero, how people approach um, conveying a new campaign or new setting to their players and having a discussion about what's going to happen. And I always, you know, for the last couple of years, send out PDFs with like house rule documents and then a setting document. So I'm, I'm kind of relaunching my... Midderlands campaign, it's finally starting to go off. Uh, this, I've been, like I, like I said, I've been having these uh, creative issues, these, um, these time management issues, so I keep putting things off and putting things off, or failure to focus, failure to focus, and, uh, and Keith is running his, his game, excuse me, and then, um, We've also had, invariably every summer, people taking vacations, people having other things going on, so gaming just hasn't been in the cards so much lately, but I'm finally getting around to it. So here in my uh, um, document for house rules, I put the elevator pitch. My initial plan is to have the Middle March campaign as an open table drop-in drop-out game. What does that mean? Many sessions will take place on a regular game night, currently Sundays, when I'm slotted to GM. It can also take place anytime I or two or more players want to game. It will take place with whatever PCs are present and, when possible in the current game context, any players not present will have their PC left behind wherever they currently are in-game. I will not make it difficult for players to rejoin the action. I'd like to do... Uh, 
to do uh, to be. Oh, I always find gram grammatical errors after you send things out, right? I'd like this to be a more procedural game than my usual fare. This is not because I want to be a hard ass. It's to explore the game through these finite resources to add more of an air of plausibility to the game. So I'll be asking players to closely track their money, equipment, food and water, and other resources. I'll be keeping close time records and noting things like durations of light sources. Players take actions in turns, 10 minute periods, when in dungeon ruin environments, in hours or days, perhaps marches, when in wilderness or travel mode, and rounds, 10 seconds, in encounters. Expending time can prompt things like wandering monster checks, and obviously drain personal resources, food, torches, etc. Between sessions, game time will pass at an equal rate, unless the previous session ended in an encounter or in some other cliffhanger-like way. So if three weeks pass between game sessions, three weeks pass in game time. I strongly encourage pseudo-play via email between sessions for things like planning, shopping trips, downtime activity, etc. I will award experience points for this. Smiley face. <laughs> the game system is Swords and Wizardry, based upon 0e D&D with supplements. It is quite simple, and if you've played any sort of D&D, you know the essence of the rules. I've emailed you a PDF of this document, uh, adding some house and clarifications, and some of the options in hazy places in the Swords and Wizardry book here. The setting is the Midlands, by Glenn Seal of Monkey Blood Design. It is a hazy fantasy British Isles with horror elements viewed through a D&D lens. I have my own interpretation of this, and the primary areas of adventure are known as the Fringe, or Places Between. These are something akin to pocket dimensions or fairy realms, accessible to mortals by passing their boundaries. Once there, the landscape can be quite different. Perhaps an ancient forest lies, or what had appeared to be rolling plains from the viewpoint of quote-unquote reality. The bounds of space and time can be altered. A woodland that can be walked across in an afternoon in reality might take a week to cross one more steps into the fringe. It is primarily from these areas where the supernatural and non-human creatures originate. In many of these regions, creatures native to the fringe may only cross into reality on specific days, or phases of the moon, or when the stars are right. But most of these regions also contain remnants of older alien civilizations, many in the form of ruins, tombs, caverns, and dungeons, often containing untold riches and horrible dangers to those bold enough to explore them. One such space is Middlemarch. So that's my like elevator pitch to the campaign that's in the rules document. And then I have a separate document that's actually uh, going to be kind of a living document that goes into some of the nitty-gritty. So, um, I have uh, a page of campaign notes gov on government hierarchy, and this is basically just lifted right from Glenn's Mitterland talking about uh, the, the, the Queen of Havenland, the, each duke controlling one of the counties of ha Havenland, and the lords and ladies, knights, currency, then I go into religion, because that's invariably what uh, the players that are running clerics or druids or paladins are going to be curious about, and, and other PCs too, so the beliefs of most is that a group of benevolent beings reside in heaven, but they generally do not bother with 
or even notice the affairs of mortals. These are, quote-unquote, the gods, or, quote-unquote, the lords of light. <laughs> Gotta have a thunder reference, right? Uh, those exceptionally holy and or blessed mortals who serve the gods in life undergo an apotheosis to serve as intermediaries between the gods and mortals. These are saints. Many gods or, re or many gods, many towns or regions have a saint associated with them. Some professions are human virtues as well, and it is the saints to which most folk turn to and venerate, and whom most clerics and paladins serve and receive their powers through. Heaven is thought to be a bright light and airy place of happiness, justice, and peace, and where the souls of those who led a good life go after death. In opposition, those malevolent and destructive powers who actively work against the lords of light occupy hell, a frigid, bleak, dark, sickly green place of torment and toil. The term demon and devil are used interchangeably for the creatures who occupy these infernal regions, and lesser powers are often sent to sow chaos, violence, and division among mortals, and take special delight in tempting the virtuous to corruption. The various lords and princes of hell are venerated by some, though usually in secret cults, and feared by most. In between, neutral in game terms, these two factions of law and chaos are the old faith of powers representing nature, spirits, and more gray human concepts. And then I list the dozen or so deities that are venerated by some in the game system, and these are either out of the Midlands in some cases, out of, from Tim Shorts's, um hunters and death zine and i think i snatched one or two from uh, greg gillespie's uh barrel maze setting as well then i have Midlands miscellany uh, i described the languages of the region so these are the languages that are available to the pcs archaic languages which are only available to um more scholarly kind of PCs, so maybe a magic user or a cleric, um, maybe a druid or something, possibly a monk could have access to these languages, and then non-human languages, which I think I'd limit uh, to non-human characters, as well as, well, maybe I'd, I'd also say a, a, a human PC could know one of these languages, but not just a a veritable cornucopia of uh, strange languages. It just doesn't seem very plausible to me. Um, so, and then I have this uh, on names. You'll find that most NPCs have English, UK sounding names, perhaps a bit on the archaic weird side, a la Dickens. Some have Latinized versions as well, especially in high society. And then, uh, I, I mean, you can name your character whatever you want, but you'll find yourself being kind of out of step if you have some crazy fantasy name rather than something that is uh, sounding more in tune with the setting. Uh, then how Bertram and Betty Q. Public view non-humans. Note, these are generalizations held by quote-unquote common folk in the setting. That there's likely truth here, but also exaggeration and, perhaps, outright falsehoods or misunderstandings. Of course, non-human PCs do not need to conform to these views and can work with the referee to determine 
quote-unquote the truth about these non-human species. So this is kind of how um, everyday humans view non-humans in the setting. Dwarfs, or dwarf, that's how <laughs> in Glenn Seals, uh, one of his latest mitterzines, he details uh, more on the non-human uh, species, dwarves, elves, and halflings, who he refers to as dwarfs, uh, woldkin, and bjarnlings. Um, and I take some inspiration from what Glenn has laid out, but for the most part, this stuff is all, or is more my take on things, so I'm not just um, lifting this verbatim from Glenn or anything. Uh, dwarfs are short-bearded and stout folk who come from the Northern Isle that sank into the sea long ago. Most live in the fringe around Scratland, and some more solitary dwarfs emerge to live among men. They are earthy souls with a great love of wine, women, and song have gluttonous appetites and have fat purses filled with silver to buy whatever they want. Never cheat a dwarf, for while they tend to be amiable enough, a dwarf cheated becomes a tower of rage that will think of nothing but vengeance afterwards. I kind of like the idea of that I first kind of was inspired by in uh, Divine Right, the board game, where they kind of describe dwarves as these more folk that uh, toil for precious metals and gems, not so much because they value them, but because the crazy humans value them, and they could go off to town to buy all the things that they don't have access to in their mountain wildernesses and under the ground and stuff. I mean, to me it kind of makes sense that living in this bleak underground environment that dwarves might really um, be drawn to garish colors, to rich food, to fermented drinks, and uh, and uh, I usually have them rather lusty as well, because in most uh, classic D&D settings, there's always this assumption that there's far more dwarven men than there are dwarven women, and uh, <laughs> well, what would that mean? The elves, or woldkin as they're sometimes called, are strange sorts. They come out of the fairylands of the fringe and are immortal. Oh, sure, they bleed and can be killed, but they don't age as we understand it. What's more is, other than being men and women, they all look exactly alike. Clones! Tall, pale, with slanted black eyes, and all the same. They're cold fish, too, not caring a whit for any but their own folk, almost without emotion. They do sometimes take a human mate, though, because you'll see hybrids often enough. Though, come to think of it, can't say I've ever seen a true elf. But my cousin Bert did. So, I kind of want to have elves as... Or, this is kind of the thing, where people don't see elves very much, and they make these... Maybe they're assumptions, maybe it's true. Maybe all elves do look exactly the same. And half-elves are where you get some kind of variable, variability in appearance. Um, goblins. This is pretty much lifted from the Midlands because Glynn has uh, different varieties of uh, like subspecies of goblin and not just hobgoblin and bugbear like there is in classic D&D but there's orc goblins and night goblins and ocular goblins and uh, 
garden goblins and stuff. So, Like all the other sorts of non-humans, goblins come from the fringe, and I wish they'd stay there. Oh, sure, the wart goblins, you know, the sort with the huge beaks, are decent enough, though quite peculiar. But all them other sorts are holy hell. Thieving, lurking, screaming, nuisances, and even murderers. They can come in different shapes and sizes, but they all have a dark heart. Well, septum for the wordy fellas. They're hard workers. Obsessive to a fault. And then last, but not least, the halflings, or the ironlings as they're known in uh, Glenn's Lost World setting. Is that it? I can't remember what it's called. Uh, well, the Midder ones. I can't remember what he's calling the whole world. The Wee Folk are few and far between outside of their town of Weeshaw. The legend has it a whole big island way down south is their homeland. They love nothing more than fishing, eating, and gossiping about their neighbors and the affairs of men. Haven't seen a one with a hair on their head or body. Well, they do have eyebrows of sorts. If you see one, see one with hair, hundred to one it's a wig. While these bairnlings, as they call themselves, like to act like bumpkins, don't believe it. They're tricky little shavers and take great delight in pulling pranks on us big folk and try to make us look like fools. It's true. They do live in holes, and they like to eat worms and bugs, too. Yuck! <laughs> and then I have the starts of a glossary, Midderland's Miscellany A to Z, where I'm just going to put in little details that the characters would know about, and as they learn things, I'll try and make this a living document and add things to it. So right now, the... the Campaign starts from the town of Brignorth, so I have an entry for Brignorth, I have an entry for Gloombugs and Gloombuggers, Gloombug Lanterns, Gloomium, uh, Magic Users, because um, they're a little bit more of a persecuted kind of, she's a witch kind of thing in uh, the Middlelands, um, and then a little thing on Middle March and... The River Six, which is the river that flows on the western border of Middermarch and, and by the town of Bryn North, Shorthorn Rat Dogs, and True Silver. And True Silver is kind of like uh, another concept lifted from, uh, well, Mithril, of course, and then, but uh, Tim Shorts and his uh, uh, Hunters and Death zine uses hard silver what I'm calling true silver. And I have, uh, I took a picture of uh, the map of Brig North that Glynn has in the Middleland setting, so I included that so the players have a map of the town of Brig North. And then last, and maybe most importantly, uh, a page of what the PCs might have heard about Middlemarch, because while uh, I want this to be a cam or a, a sandbox kind of game, that's largely player-driven. I also want it to be <clears throat> a little bit of a focus sandbox. So the intent is that most of the game action, most of the scenarios are going to take place in Middlemarch, in this kind of fringe area where the supernatural comes from and is more prevalent, where things are weird, and also where things are um, untamed. And wilderness. So what the PCs know or have recently heard 
On the other side of the vale, the land is covered in tall trees and hills. The forest is known as the Iceni, after the feral tribesmen who sometimes wander there from their holds in the interior hills. During the Amorian occupation, that's the, the equivalent of the Roman occupation, several cohorts of the 5th Legion were sent into Middlemarch to deal with its marauding inhabitants. They never came back. Several sightings of this lost legion have been reported. They are now walking dead. An old mine was discovered long ago with several veins of silver, and even true silver. An underground settlement, a boomtown of sorts called Quicksilver, grew up and still exists. It attracts all sorts of outcasts, adventurers, and unsavory sorts. There have been several concerted efforts to settle and tame Middlemarch, most by the lords of Brignorth. So far, this has met with mixed, mostly negative results. Barrel mounds and fields of mounds dot the interior. Many have been plundered by adventurers, and relics of true silver and other valuable grave goods have been discovered. A huge dragon, Lunamalum, once dwelled in Middlemarch, crossing into the Middlelands to ravage the countryside. Eventually, a tithe and sacrifice was arrived at, and every month, Brignorth would send a cart full of goods and live offerings to placate the dragon. About 30 years ago, their dragon was slain by a pair of twin sor sister sorcerers, the Merited sisters. After the dragon was slain, they built twin towers across a vale. They disappeared about 20 years ago. Most, so they, most say they killed each other in one of their endless disputes, the lair and presumably vast treasures of Luna Malum has never been discovered. An expedition to extract lumber from Middlemarch was sent shortly after the reported death of the dragon. The wagon loads that returned through the Vale discovered that the tall timber had transformed into twisted scrub. A small settlement of hunters and trappers, along with a trading post, grew out of the lumber venture. This slowly grew into an actual village called Houndshead with more facilities developed as adventurers were drawn by the barrows and dreams of discovering the dragon horde. Small holders discovered that crops of turnips and parsnips grew to huge proportions. Further, they were very tasty and nourishing and did not change when brought out uh, to Brignorth to trade. This latest news has created renewed interest in settling Middlemarch, though the dangers still exist. So that is the campaign setting that I'm about to launch, and the players have a variety of potential goals uh, based upon this knowledge and rumors. Uh, are they out to um, accelerate the settling of Middlemarch? Um, maybe they want to have their own holdings, because holdings are going to be much easier to get there than they are in the in the civilized lands of reality. Uh, are they out to find these barrows and ruins that are supposedly filled with treasures? Will they attempt to s discover the lost horde of the, uh, the dead dragon? Will they try and find the, the towers of the sorcerer sisters? Um, will they travel to Quicksilver? and use that as a base of operations, or Houndshead. There's a lot of options there, and uh, I hope the players 
have a good time exploring this region. Uh, one note. So, let's see. Quick Kickstarter. I've backed a number of projects. Where are they at? Well, I don't know. I backed, I think, six zines from Zine Quest 3. Last year, I think they all had kind of filtered in by the end of August, so I'm still hopeful that I'll see them. So far, I've only seen one uh, in the shadow of Tower Silverax. Still waiting on Wizard Funk 3, on uh, Harrowed Ground, on the many crypts of Lady Ingrade, on Planar Compass 1 and 2, and on the... Oh, the Sepulchre one, the one by Steve C. Um, anyway, Sepulchre of the Wizard something. <laughs> I don't remember. I also backed the uh, Back to Basics um, compilation uh, of that zine, in a hardback with some additional material, I think. Um, I have a feeling that's probably going to be the next thing I get because... Uh, the uh, creator seems to be really on the ball, and it's, I think, gone to the printer now. And then I backed, uh, like I said before, backed uh, the Hyperborea game and setting from uh, Jeff Talanian of Northwind Adventures. And that has a expected ship date of December, so that's a ways off. And from what I understand, um, he's been very timely in his releases, so... I'd be surprised if it went much longer, although you never know what's going to happen, right? There can be, as we learned over the last year, year and a half, I guess it is now, um, things can come up that uh, present all sorts of unexpected challenges. But I hope uh, the producers of these various projects um, aren't getting discouraged and demoralized. I hope they're still working on it and um, we'll release them because they all sounded like cool products and I look forward to seeing all of them. Um, I'd like to keep backing these things, but if, if I ever do have a bad experience with something not fulfilling or taking years to release or something, you know, that will probably poison the well a little bit for me. Anyway, thanks to uh, Daniel and Goblin's Henchmen for your calls. Thanks to listening. Hope you got something out of the show that's uh, worthwhile or enjoyable. And if you haven't called yet and want to take part in the next Midderzine giveaway, call in by, I guess it's tomorrow midnight, August 6th, with your cartoon-related uh, take. And your name will go on the hat. If you live in the continental U.S. Disclaimer there. So thanks for listening. Don't go down in a heap. Ah! 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 Ah!